ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to A Big Country. My name's Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me. This week, we're remembering the pioneering truck drivers who traversed dirt roads to deliver cargo through northwest Australia, opening the region up to the world. We'll hear how a regional community is remembering a local lad who packed his bags and boxing gloves and boarded a ship to represent Australia at the 1924 Olympic Games in Paris. And we'll meet the Queensland farmers who've made the difficult decision to wind down their gourmet mushroom business, but they're proud of what they achieved and the customers they met along the way. I think that was one of the most rewarding parts was especially like Dan at the farmer's market and before we had our little one being at the farmer's market and people just getting so excited and seeing all the varieties we grew and then it was being a part of that education to people of look at all these varieties of mushrooms you can actually eat that are not button mushrooms. We don't have a lot of access to that sort of food in Australia and so seeing people's excitement about it was so rewarding. Saying farewell to the rewarding work of growing and selling fungi, that story is coming up. First today, we're heading to Gladstone Harbour on the Queensland central coast for a tale of two sea turtles. Reporter Katrina Bevan visited a rehabilitation centre where staff were releasing a turtle that had been nursed back to good health while dealing with the heartbreaking injury suffered by another reptile. The ocean water. <laughs> Green sea turtle Moana is slowly making her way towards the ocean. She's been in a rehabilitation centre for months recovering and now it's finally time for her to return to the sea. Queen Island Turtle Rehabilitation Centre manager Kim von Alstenster says it's days like today that make the centre really worthwhile. Our success rate is 73%, which we're quite proud of. It's, it's quite up there, so uh, that's good. Yeah, so we have released 320 uh, sea turtles back into the wild so far. So Moana today is going to be number 321. Moana was found stuck in the mud in the Gladstone Harbour in July last year by employees at the Queensland Alumina Limited or QAL refinery. After workers checked the camera footage, they realised she'd been there a while. Seeking advice from the Queen Island team, they were advised to get her out. But being at the bottom of a three-metre rock wall in deep, slippery mud, an elaborate rescue attempt was born, involving a crane, cage and boat. Here's QAL employee Corey Bruton. Yeah, the call come through from our um, leader, Neil Sykes, asked if uh, we could organise some planks so we can safely get out to the turtle. As we got the planks down there and we all arrived. The plan was to organise a shift crane operator to come down with a certified lifting basket to lift down to the turtle and safely put her onto the cage and then move her over into the boat. When she was assessed, it was clear she had soft shell syndrome. So on average, our turtles stay in care for about 77 days um, and she has been in care with us for 165 yeah, so a little bit longer, a little bit more expensive turtle uh, than uh, than the other ones. But yeah, she's super strong and active, and her, her uh, shell is uh, has been hardening up, and she's ready to go. She's been pacing the edge of the pool. That's generally when they uh, when they can show us like that they're, that they're ready to go. They want out. Yeah. She was recently released, marking another success story for the centre. Though Moana's story has a happy ending, that's not always the case. Kim says she and staff were heartbroken recently when fellow green sea turtle Midori came into their care 
with some severe injuries. So Midori uh, was found in the Calliope uh, River, just uh, like in the in the in the river mouth, and uh, she'd been floating. Um, yeah, so the finder called her and pulled her into the into the boat, and um, she was in really poor condition because she already had um, boat strikes that had been healing, uh, but still quite some holes in it with uh, a heavy parasite load in, in there as well. Then um, when we started cleaning that um, th- those wounds up, I actually noticed um, a, a skin tag. It looked like a skin tag. It was completely like in, um, in the turtle. And when we pulled it out, it was actually a five centimeter uh, nail, like a rusty nail that had been shot in uh, with, the, with a nail gun. Um, so yeah, and that's like right in the area where her lungs sit as well. She's so she's got a really bad infection. Her prognosis is still very poor. We don't know if she's uh, if she's gonna make it. She's um, pretty lethargic, doesn't move around uh, much, and she's still sitting on top of the water. And uh, she's been on an extended course of antibiotics. We've done some salomacentesis, trying to take um, the the air out, and yeah. No real uh, response to the treatment um, um, just yet. So, yeah, we're keeping all flippers crossed and we're giving her all the TLC that we can uh, get. And, yeah, lots of care and hopefully she's going to pull through. The team suspects the nail was embedded with a nail gun. It would have had so much force like going in. So uh, you can't just do that with a, a hammer and a, and a nail uh, because the turtle would have been swimming around. Um, the turtle's not sitting still. So it's pretty uh, heartbreaking that somebody would do something uh, like that to a turtle. We just quite can't quite comprehend why somebody would do such a thing. While the team continues to look after Midori and several other turtles in care, they're also reminding Bodies, beachgoers and coastal residents to be mindful with turtle nesting and hatchling season underway. When you're out on the water, just go slow. And also when you're walking on the beach and you see um, um, a turtle uh, emerging from the water to go uh, nest, keep your distance like they they really react to to movement if it's uh, at night just don't shine your torches on it uh, because you, the turtle will just turn around and go back uh, in the water and the same goes for the hatchlings like the hatchlings need that glow on the horizon to find their way um, to the beach and there's been so many reports of, of hatchlings going the wrong direction because people keep their lights on at night and um, and they go the wrong direction and then uh, don't actually make it into the ocean. Yeah, so when we just switch our lights off at night and just be mindful of that, they just go into the, the right direction, the ocean where they're meant to be, be going to. At this library in regional New South Wales, visitors are being transported back to France in the 1920s. Hi, I'm Bridget Murphy and I've come to the local library in Inverell in northern New South Wales, close to the Queensland border. Locals gathered here today are remembering former Inverell resident Charles Tennant Jardine. 100 years ago, he packed his bags and his boxing gloves and boarded a ship to make his way with the Australian Olympic team to Paris for the 1924 Games. Now, Charles Tennant Jardine's family are handing over his treasured possessions from his time as an Olympic boxer to be held in a collection at the library. Anne-Marie Dyer is Charles's granddaughter. 
Following the First World War, so because he was the, the youngest son of much older brothers, they'd all gone and fought overseas. So he was literally the last man standing to run the, the family property. He was based at Birali, which is north of Inverell, as well as out at um, Moree. So he's quite isolated where he was to get to the boxing gymnasiums. He had to get to town. He had to hop on a train. It probably would have taken him all day to <laughs> to get down to, to Sydney, then go to the gym. There's one criticism of him in the, the newspapers where they said, um, oh, Jardine would do well if he trained a bit more. And I'm thinking, far out. He was so remote where he was. Like all these other guys would have just ducked around the corner to go to a gym to train. He was like thousands of miles away. What was his journey over to Paris? So it took five weeks aboard the Ormond and I think that that was, was probably pretty exciting actually for a whole bunch of uh, largely single blokes. There's about 37 all-male team. I think there was a lot of fine dining, there was a lot of dancing, there's a little bit of boxing, a little bit of swimming. Sonia Lang, manager of library services at Inverell Library, is excited for what the collection means for local history and was humbled to welcome the collection into their care. It's really important for us to capture the rich history of the communities that we live in. People often think that if you're in a rural area, in a small country town, you don't necessarily get opportunities, and that's not true. We know there have been some amazing people from this area who've really gone out and made a mark, and Charles Jardine was one of those people. So there might be a, a young local kid who's doing a bit of sport, doing some boxing. This can demonstrate to them that they really can go absolutely as far as they want to go and really have the opportunity to, to make whatever future they want, knowing that these materials are irreplaceable and unique as well. I mean, how many 1924 Olympic blazers are there? The whole team was less than 50 people, so, you know, to have that is is quite remarkable and it's very humbling. And I think it also recognises the, the key role that libraries can serve in providing access to the history of our community and in, in providing that safeguarding and making sure that people can access our history into the future. And libraries have a key role in that. So that recognition was wonderful and we're very, very grateful and very humble. Miss Dyer says despite her grandfather's shortfalls at the Olympic Games in 1924, she's still very proud of his legacy. In his very first round, he was up against Otto von Porat and he was ultimately the, he won the gold medal in that division. So to be up against him in the first match, I thought, yep, he didn't stand a chance. <laughs> but nonetheless, the fact that he made it there in the first place is quite remarkable. And now to be a hundred years later, to still have his memory so alive and to the Olympics to be returning to Paris this year, does it feel like a, f a full circle moment for him? What do you think his perspective on this would be? Uh, I think it's probably more for the immediate family. So because he's, he married quite late in life, he found a lovely Inverell girl and she, she was the light of his life. And then when he died at a young age, he left it quite a young family. So there was four in the family. They, the oldest was seven. My dad was about five when he died. Uh, so I think it's probably the next generation that have really embraced his story. I think he just went back to the farm and 
did things on the sheep property and just went about his business and then died at a young age. So I guess there wasn't a great deal of, um, I don't know, acknowledgement of that activity. You just kept on doing what you did all the time. And I guess now, does it does it feel almost lovely that he does get to have that acknowledgement that he, he made a pretty incredible feat, like making it to the Olympics. Oh, it's pretty exciting. I don't think, I'll never make it to the Olympics, so I'm living vicariously through my grandfather. <laughs> Anne-Marie Dyer, a granddaughter of the 1924 Olympian Charles Tennant Jardine. She was speaking to reporter Bridget Murphy at the local library at Inverell in northern New South Wales, where her grandfather's memorabilia from the 1924 Olympics will be held in a special collection. You can find more on that story on the ABC website. Just look for the A Big Country program page. I'm Clint Jasper, and you're listening to A Big Country. Still to come, we'll hear the story of the two famous aviators who started a trucking company to fund their adventures and played a pivotal role in opening up the northwest of Western Australia. And we're meeting two young Queensland farmers who've made the difficult decision to close the gourmet mushroom business they worked so hard to build from scratch. The couple crowdfunded to help establish mountaintop mushrooms, growing a head-turning array of tasty, colourful fungi in the Sunshine Coast hinterland. Jennifer Nichols has their story. Daniel Tebbett and Katrina Atkinson, a bit of a sad day, not many more openings of the door on mountaintop mushrooms. Yeah, so we've decided to close the farm, so this will be our last week in operation. There won't be any more mushrooms for sale. I'm sorry, Katrina. How many years has gone into this now? Um, We've been going about probably over six years now, I think. Yeah, 2017 we started. And you really built something that you could be proud of. Yeah, we're incredibly proud. Like Dan has been incredibly devoted to this farm and given it so much of his time and energy. And together as a team, we gave it everything we could possibly throw at it. You got it into some very high-end restaurants. I mean, you were very popular at all of the farmer's markets. Yeah, we worked with a lot of really awesome chefs. That's really been the backbone of the business is to be able to supply the restaurants that we have and to have that support from them. So that's been really awesome for us. So how did we get to this point where you had to make this really difficult decision? Well, it was a mix of the demands of farming gourmet mushrooms on a young family. So that's a really difficult work-life balance to have to juggle. The change in the economy has definitely made things a bit trickier. Um, And at the moment, it's been a need for infrastructure upgrade and also needing to move out of this particular facility. All of the things that we needed to do at once, it just... It was too much for one small little young family like us to be able to pull off. How old is your little Ina? Nearly three. What sort of impact does all the heat and humidity we've been having have on mushrooms? Yeah, the main thing that's happened to us lately, especially being up here on the mountain, because it's so wet and so misty, I've had electrical faults with the air conditioning. When it's rained for days and days and days, it's just cut out, and I haven't been able to get it back on until the sun's come out and it's dried out a bit. Um, so over the last couple of months, we've lost a few weeks of production because of that, and that was kind of the nail in the coffin just decided it's too much to deal with these losses anymore. I can't even imagine what it would be like to come in in the morning
morning and see that the air conditions cut out and that your production's been lost. Yeah, it's cut out again yesterday. It's 33 degrees in the groan when it should be about 18. Now, you're so passionate about this. Do you regret going into it as young farmers? No, not at all. I just probably wish that we had more capital behind us to do it properly and not be scratching, just putting things together with the little budget that we had. Yeah, you know, if we had money behind us, we could have done it a lot better. There's a lot of ways we could have mitigated different issues that we've had, but we've just done what we can with what we have. And yeah, but no, I don't regret it at all. We've learned so much. And so what does daily life mean for you now? Well, I work for Barung Landcare, so I'm doing more work with them within their contracting division. And at the moment, Dan's in the process of essentially closing down and getting rid of all the stock and the substrate, and then it moves into selling what equipment we can and then cleaning out the shed. You said that the air conditioning went off yesterday, so that you're talking about right now. So if we go in there, it's going to be... Can we have yeah. a look at what sort Come of impact that it. has? <laughs> Come and have a feel. I've already emptied the room for the last couple yeah, of days. Yeah, so it's empty now. Yeah. Wow. So this is what you're saying, it should be much cooler in here. 18? Yeah, see, it's 30 degrees right now in here. Shouldn't really ever be over 20. Those mushrooms growing around us, just run us through the varieties that you were growing again? Uh, at the moment, we're just doing different oyster mushrooms and lion's mane. Made the decision well, probably at the start of summer, to wind back a lot of the different varieties just because the heat gets a bit much for them. I think there's whites, blue oyster, chocolate oyster, yellow oyster, and then lion's mane, and that's pretty much all that we have in there at the moment. Oh, and that was so beautiful. I went to a flash restaurant on the weekend and got to eat some of your mushrooms as part of the meal, and they were so delicious. I mean, it's a real loss to the local restaurant industry, that's for sure. Yeah, it's a shame, you know. I feel bad about that, but hopefully someone can take on this infrastructure and equipment and build something up again, and I'm sure there won't be long before there's another mushroom farm that, that opens up anyway. But like you're saying, you really do need that backing so that you've got really good temperature control and a lot more, I suppose, power over the elements that make mushrooms grow well. Yeah, totally. We've had so many different issues over the years. This is just one of them. I mean, it has been really particularly wet, like the last sort of three or four weeks. So it is kind of exceptional circumstances, but that's all part of it as well. And how much did you appreciate the love for what you did from your customers? Uh, I think that was one of the most rewarding parts was especially like Dan at the farmer's market and before we had our little one being at the farmer's market and people just getting so excited and seeing all the varieties we grew and then it was being a part of that education to people of look at all these varieties of mushrooms you can actually eat that are not button mushrooms. We don't have a lot of access to that sort of food in Australia and so seeing people's excitement about it was so rewarding and the chefs I think for you Dan seeing them get excited about a box of mushrooms it's such a big part of why you do what you do. With the chefs they know exactly what they're looking at and what they're looking for and they're experienced with produce so they can really tell a good product when they see one so it means a lot coming from really experienced and high quality chefs to appreciate what we've done. Being a truck driver in Australia can be a tough gig. Navigating bad roads, isolation and making repairs on the go. John Morgan, who worked as a driver for the Gascoigne Trading Company in Western Australia's northwest for 20 years, knows the challenge as well. There's no air conditioning those days, and the roads are all dirt, and I've got 24 punches to Port Edland once. 
Hello, I'm Rosemary Murphy and I caught up with John and some of his former colleagues who are gathering in the town of Carnarvon to mark 100 years since the establishment of the Gascoigne Trading Company. Started by Australian aviation pioneers Sir Charles Kingford Smith and Keith Anderson, the haulage service played a pivotal role in opening up Western Australia's northwest. For truck drivers like John Morgan, they were long hard days behind the wheel, but also memorable. One job he'll never forget was when he was asked to transport dynamite needed at a mine site, as well as the detonators. And he said, whatever you do, don't pull up at the roadhouse, because if that thing goes off, everyone will get blown up. <laughs> I said, thanks very much. He said, before you go, I'll give you a box of detonators. He put them in the glove box. Don't put them with the dynamite. I said, no way. <laughs> they gave me a bit extra, not much extra. $2 an hour and extra. Anyway, I survived the trick. There was also some ingenuity while waiting for water levels to recede at a river crossing. There was a Fortescue River. We got to there and we couldn't get across. Anyway, there was trucks on one side of the river and some on the other side. And they said, we run out of tucker, we got nothing to drink. I said, well, I've got a trailer load of beer and another truck's got food in it. Okay, can we have some? I said, yeah, as long as you pay for your beer. So they walked across the river and I had a sugar bag. I put all the money in the sugar bag and we all took off. Anyway, I got to the beer. Like opened the doors. He said, hey, mate, he said, something wrong with that pellet the beer there, or I ordered more than that. I said, well, I sold them down the road. Here's your, here's your change. I gave my bag full of notes. <laughs> For Margaret Day, who immigrated from London to Western Australia, a decision to seek adventure and take up work as a payroll clerk with the Gascoigne Trading Company in Carnarvon would lead her to meet her husband, Tom. I met him in 65 and we got married in 66 and every Gascon Traders person attended our wedding who was in town and yeah everybody came it was just an open house and you, everybody had to come so that was it. Mr Day had been driving throughout the Pilbara including to the asbestos mining town of Wittenoom. Going into the north we, um, we'd go to Port Headland then maybe across to Marble Bar and occasionally I also went to Wittenoom loaded asbestos out of Whitnoom, which was, um, in, the, you know, in those days, there was quite a lot of asbestos being mined there and there was a, quite a big town there. Maybe if we were going to Whitnoom, we'd go in the morning, low, or over, over the afternoon, get to Whitnoom, load up in the morning, then go to the hotel. It, it, it was all loaded by bags, so you had to jump in and out of the truck to let the dust settle and all that jazz, and then you'd go down to the hotel and you'd shower up, have a couple of beers to wash the dust out of your throat and, and drive to Perth. There were strong bonds formed between co-drivers needed for multi-day journeys. The co-drivers were more important than being with your wife because they were with them more than they ever were at home. And when they were home, they had to go to the pub and have a beer with them. Even if they'd been with them four or five days in the truck. And you had to rely on one another. I mean, you know, like when you go, you, you go to sleep lying up in a bunk, and they relied on you too to be able to drive safely and uh, get yourselves to Perth. The couple were among those who attended a reunion, marking 100 years since the business began. 
Historian Richard Offen says the Gascoigne Trading Company was started by Charles Kingford Smith and Keith Anderson in 1924. They'd been working as pilots in the region for Western Australian Airways before they were sacked for asking for better wages and conditions. They, they were in the Gascoigne, they were living in the Gascoigne and they figured that the Gascoigne's huge sheep stations would benefit from motorised transport. That sort of transport being would easily outrun the camel trains and the horse wagons that took the wool and the meat to usually to Carnarvon uh, port uh, to be taken either to Perth or, or off to the four corners of the earth. Now, one of its earliest contracts was the mail run from the Gascoigne to Mekathara. And after that, business really took up. Kingford Smith would go on to complete the first Trans-Pacific flight. One of the reasons he set up this company was to make sufficient profit for him and Anderson to undertake that little adventure themselves. Historian Richard Offen ending that report from Rosemary Murphy. You can read more about the Gascoigne Trading Company, its remarkable history and the role it played in opening up remote parts of northwest Western Australia. To find that story, head online to the ABC homepage at abc.net.au. Just look for the A Big Country program page. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for listening and I'll chat to you again next week. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 